Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Deep brain stimulation. It's a way to use technology to help with electrical pulses to the brain, kind of like a pacemaker to the heart. And it's being done for people suffering from conditions like essential tremors that are interfering with daily activities and also with diseases like Parkinson's when medications have reached their maximum benefit and are no longer controlling the symptoms that people are suffering with. How does it work? What's it like to have it done? And how long does it last? Well, we'll have some answers to these questions and more with our current guests. From Kaiser Permanente, we have Dr. Matthew Chang, a neurosurgeon, Dr. Stuart Pang, a neurologist, and we have a patient, Neil, who are all in the studio today. Neil actually had the procedure, and it helped him to get his life back. We're going to hear that firsthand experience in just a few moments. We'll hear about what the technique is all about and how do you do it. But along with talking with our guests, we also are talking with you as well. And if you want to join our conversation, you can at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor, neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Welcome, gentlemen, to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I want to start with you, Dr. Pang. You're, you're a neurologist, and you've been doing this for a long time. How did we ever come up with the idea of deep brain stimulation, and what do we mean by that? Um, deep brain stimulation is an option for patients who have Parkinson's disease or a tremor that's not responding to medication. Um, we knew that there are two sites in the brain that if you stimulate them or if you ablate them, by um, put a, a hole there, uh, you can actually improve tremor and improve symptoms. So with that in mind, the... Uh, uh, deep brain stimulation was uh, started as a, a protocol for patients who are failing medications. So if somebody, let's talk about essential tremor for a moment, because sometimes you see people and they're trying to eat or they're trying to get, you know, even a cup of coffee and their hand is just tremoring so much that it, they're spilling it. They're having trouble actually feeding themselves or getting themselves liquids. And sometimes medication can help like beta blockers or other types of pills, but sometimes they just don't. So that would be a situation where you mentioned somehow altering that connection in the brain could stop the tremor. Right. So if a patient has failed medication, as you described, then they'd be an excellent candidate. And once the evaluation is completed, then they can be sent to the neurosurgeon and the uh, wires placed into the brain. And then the, we can uh, program it so that we can decrease the severity of the tremor. And is it the same kind of theory with Parkinson's, that in that situation there's also a tremor, but it's a slightly different reason and cause? Right. Well, for Parkinson's patients, they have, in addition to a rest tremor, they have what's called motor stiffness uh, or rigidity, and they have slowness. So the uh, deep brain stimulation will help those symptoms as well as the tremor. So really, if, if you have these symptoms and you've been on medicine for a while and you stopped responding or maybe the medication reached its peak and you're having a lot of consequences when the medicine wears off, this is an alternative. Yes, it's a really good option for patients who are uh, still want to be functioning uh, and uh, continue with their daily activities because the uh, deep brain stimulation can alter their, uh, how they function. Now, who would not be a candidate? Well, we do a screening for patients before we do the procedure. So we do what's called a uh, neuropsychological test. We want to make sure the patients are not depressed and don't have significant dementia. We know that once the procedure is done, they can make the dementia worse. 
and also it can make depression worse. So we want to screen for those two uh, entities. So if you have Parkinson's or essential tremor and you have depression or dementia, this procedure could actually exacerbate those other symptoms. So you really don't want to do it. What about people who have early Parkinson's with minimal symptoms? They probably wouldn't be a candidate. Right. Right now we are tending to do on patients who are, uh, as you described earlier, failing their medications or having uh, too many side effects from the medicine. So that really, if you if you don't have a lot of troubles with the medicine, probably not the best of all situations. Right. Okay. Now, let's talk with you, Dr. Chang, because you're a neurosurgeon, and when Dr. Pang said, you know, you would potentially go see the neurosurgeon to see if you could have this done, what are some of the criteria that you look at? Some of the things that I look at is the, the character of the patient's Parkinson's, and sometimes we'll see patients that are tremor-predominant Parkinson's, where they present with a lot of tremor. And then sometimes we see patients that are more a rigidity or a freezing-type Parkinson's. And uh, we, re- we do well with the b- a deep brain stimulation for both of those patients. But uh, I do think we exceed the, the ability of the medications to treat the patients in the tremor-predominant patients. And then we equal the, the uh, medication's efficacy, but keep that the window permanent rather than they get better, they get worse as they take their medications through the day. We keep them in that good range uh, for the patients that are more freezing. So we look at what, you know, are they more tremor predominant or are they more freezing? Uh, and then also the general evaluation with me involves seeing are you healthy enough to undergo the surgery for Parkinson's uh, for placing the deep brain stimulator. Right. If you have heart problems or lung problems or kidney problems or something that's not well controlled, you probably ought to take care of that first. Or if you can't, doing a big surgery could be a risk. Correct. Now, tell us a little bit about the surgery. Is it what I think it is? Well, the surgery for Parkinson's has two stages. The first stage is the actual insertion of the leads deep into the brain into for Parkinson's into the subthalamic nucleus. So you got to kind of take off part of the skull? We just actually drill a little burr hole. Okay. And uh, when, they, when the patients come in, we initially, we actually place a frame on their head. And uh, that frame has four pins. They press through the skin and they press against the skull, but don't, those, in that particular portion, they don't go through the skull. And then we do a scan with that frame in place. And that scan allows us to localize where within the frame we want to place uh, the leads. Kind of like a GPS kind of deal. It is almost like, yeah, it's like a triangulation of where we're going to put the leads in. And once the scan is done, then we take them to the OR and we uh, prep them all up and, and uh, drill uh, two little burr holes. Uh, and then we, place the, we start off with a really small microelectrode and we place that electrode through the brain, deep into the brain while measuring uh, currents from that electrode uh, and sort of map out the subthalamic nucleus. And once we get it mapped out, we put the uh, permanent lead in, and then we, uh, we do that on both sides of the brain. And then w- once we're done with that, we close. That part of the operation is done with the patient awake. Uh, so, and there's a reason for that. Yes, we want to map out the subthalamic nucleus and make sure we have an adequate distance of subthalamic nucleus to place our electrode in. Distance from? So we want uh, a depth of the actual subthalamic nucleus of at least four millimeters. And why would having somebody stay awake be important for that? Because when someone's under general anesthesia, we can't see the electrode recordings of that that nucleus. And so uh, they have to be awake for that portion. Now, the other thing that we do, once we put the permanent electrode in, we actually stimulate it in the operating room to make sure that we're not getting too many side effects from it. We can get various side effects uh, from, the, from the electrode itself. 
So when you're doing this, the brain doesn't feel pain. You don't have that perception of extreme discomfort. I mean, a lot of people would think, you're putting a needle on my skin, ouch. But your skin has entirely different pain receptors than your brain. So the skin has, you know, sensation, but the brain itself does not. Uh, the layers that we go through to get to the brain, initially it's the scalp and skin, and then we have to drill a hole in the skull, and that portion of the operation is much like uh, getting your teeth drilled. It's very, very loud, and you can hear it resonating through your whole head. Uh, and then the, little, the last part is going through the dura, which is the lining of the brain, and that has a little bit of sensation too, and when we puncture that, people sometimes say, oh, I had a little headache when that happened. And then, once, and then once we're actually onto the brain portion, there's no sensation until we stimulate. And once we stimulate, sometimes we'll get some tingling on one side of the body, and, that, and those type of things are to be expected. So the goal in this procedure is to put this stimulator, this almost like an electronic device, into the area of the brain that is potentially going to help reduce some of the symptoms. Correct. And what kind of stimulation are we talking about? Like electrical pulses? Do you have to... How do you I'm just trying to think so you've got these these stimulators in your that are in this area of the brain they connect to something how do they connect wires they, yeah so what we're placing into the brain is actually just a wire a little electrode and then that's the first part of the operation the second part once we're done with that first part we actually tunnel tunnel those wires right behind your ear so nobody we, can see it it's pretty small nobody yeah, well, unless they really looked closely so they're we, not going to see some big thing at that point, no, we, we stitch them up and they go home. And then they come back a week, week later and we put in the actual sort of battery pack or pacemaker portion of it. And we place a uh, little battery pack in the chest, uh, usually like around- Like a pacemaker like would a be, pacemaker, but on the other side. Yeah, okay. Right about at the level of the clavicle or your, uh, uh, your neck bone there. And then we tunnel some wires up from that and connect them to the wires that are going into the brain. And that's the sort of stage two of the operation. That part of the operation is done with the patient asleep. It's an easier part of the oper operation for the patient. And uh, then once we get it all connected up, we can then uh, in a couple of weeks turn it on. All right, Neil, I want to hear from you. You've had this experience. What medical condition did you have that made you do this particular deep brain stimulation surgery? Well, uh, I've had Parkinson's for 12 years now. And I think one morning I got up and uh, I tried to get dressed. Couldn't get dressed. So you couldn't even get dressed, and you said, you know, I've had Parkinson's for many years. I'm noticing these symptoms. Was it rigidity? Were you just unable to move? Or were you noticing the tremor, or was it both? All of the above. It was both. Yeah, and sometimes more, sometimes less. Okay. But uh, things like getting dressed, um, trying to put a shirt on and try to button, I couldn't button the shirts. I was trying to get all my pants on, trying to get my legs into my pants. Just literally getting dressed. Yeah. Okay. So when you decided you were going to do the procedure and you met with your surgeons and kind of talked about it, did you have any fears? If somebody out there said, this could work for Grandpa or this could work for me, what were some of the things that you had to overcome to agree to say, okay, it's time, I'm going to do this? Did you have any worries or concerns? No. None? I jumped, I jumped at a chance. You jumped at it? Jumped at it. All right, Neil, you're probably in the minority just jumping right in, but I don't know. So now that you did this procedure, you look back. Are you glad you did it? Yep. Okay. What have you noticed physically? Um, improvement in my dexterity. Improvement in my uh, not, my tremors are not as bad. Um, let's see. Um, the tightness of the uh, 
my muscles. So you've noticed you're not having as much rigidity. Can you get your self dressed in the morning now? Pretty much. So you went from I got up and I couldn't put on my own pants and shirt and button the buttons to I can do it on my own now. Yeah. Do you still take medication? Yes. Okay. We're still working out some. Uh, I see Doctor Pang every so many months, and we try to still uh, work out uh, how much voltage I should my how much. Did you turn up my stimulator or turn down my stimulator? Well, and that's a really interesting point. And Dr. Pang, so after the stimulator is surgically implanted, that may or may not be the end of the story. You may still need adjustments, and there's ways that that can happen. Tell me a little bit about those adjustments and how do you know what you need to do and stimulate or not stimulate as much. How does that go about? So about four weeks after the uh, implants are placed, we bring the patient back to the office and then we start programming to find the right combination of where the leads are placed in each side of the brain. Uh, then we turn the voltage up, and we send the patient home. We bring them back every two to three weeks as we adjust the stimulation. We have patients sometimes come in without their medicine to see how bad they are in the morning, and then we do the stimulation, and then we adjust the medications and the stimulation according to how they respond. So what you're really looking at is someone like Neil, can he get up, put his pants on, put on his shirt, look at the dexterity that he's expressing, look at tremors, look at other sorts of physical signs of Parkinson's for him, and then that way you know to turn up the stimulation. Exactly. And is there a point where you have to ever turn it down? Yeah. So what we do is when we uh, train patients uh, in the clinic how to turn it up and down themselves, then they can actually have a self-programmer. So if they feel that the tremor is bothersome, they can actually increase the programmer at home. We teach them that. Or if they feel that the stimulation is too strong because they have side effects of numbness or visual symptoms, they can actually turn it down themselves. And that's why we bring them back periodically to monitor that. And then you get to the point where, is there ever a, a threshold where which you can't increase the stimulation any further? Yeah, depends. Uh, what we do is we try to adjust it best we can, but sometimes patients have side effects. They either have numbness, tingling, visual symptoms, or they feel fatigued. Uh, so we uh, have to switch the settings, or sometimes we just can't go further up on the setting. That we just have to adjust the medications. So you know, side effects of too much stimulation. Is the stimulation all the time, or is it? You know, would you not do the brain stimulation when someone's sleeping at night? How would you go about setting that day-to-day -day variation? Well, the patients could actually turn off the stimulator themselves if they felt they didn't need it. But the majority of patients have the stimulator on throughout the day. Uh, but sometimes some of the Parkinson's medications, uh, such as carbidopa, levodopa, can make you move too much. So when that's the case, sometimes the patient wants to turn off their stimulator, so they can actually turn it off at that time. And then when they feel off or slow, they can turn it back on. So it's their own personal device. Right. And they can make it go stronger or weaker based on their symptoms. It really is something that they get to choose based on how they feel that day. Right. So that's the, the goal is for us to give them quality of life and for them to have uh, the ability to increase and decrease the stimulator on their own according to how they feel every day. Which is something that, you know, when you were, if you have people who you see who don't have the deep brain stimulator with medication, you would do the same thing. Exactly. There's got to be a certain flexibility. You know, for a lot of conditions that I see, high blood pressure or high cholesterol or diabetes, you can't really choose to take your pills one day and not choose to take them another day. Part of what we do is sort of consistent management. But when you have something that is so day-to-day -day variable, sometimes you have to. And so you actually give patients the control to make the decisions they feel they need to do 
based on how their symptoms are that day. Yes, exactly. It's a pretty classic that Parkinson's or tremors kind of, well, we'll talk Parkinson's because, Neil, that's that's what you were uh, dealing with. But is it classic that you have some good days, some bad days, and even within the day it can be such a variation? Yes, it's very common for patients to have uh, fluctuations throughout the day. So the ability to do their own stimulation is sort of similar to the ability to take an extra dose of medicine, but less side effects than taking the medicine because eventually people wind up not responding as well to the medicine. Is that right? Yeah, that happens after you've been on medication for several years. You develop what's called end-dose wearing off, so the medicines stop working after maybe three hours, so you have to take it uh, more frequently. Or you develop what's called abnormal involuntary movements because of the overstimulation of the brain. So too much of the medicine, and you start having other movements, too little of the medicine, and you notice that you have those symptoms wear off much sooner, or actually the symptoms come back, and the medicine wear off much sooner, so you wind up dose escalating. Yes, so that's what the deep brain stimulation is supposed to help us uh, smooth everything out for you. Excellent. Now, Dr. Matthew Chang, you've put in these electrodes in someone's brain. Are there any side effects to it? Long term? So the surgery itself can have several potential complications. Uh, Probably the one that we worry about the most is infection. Anytime we put a foreign body into our, into the human body, uh, that can be a, that can be a host for infection. And uh, so the most common complication is that it gets infected. If that happens, oftentimes we have to take it out or, or, uh, and and put a new one in later. Probably the second most common complication is that over time, one of the leads uh, may break. Uh, As you're moving, you're constantly flexing, your body's moving, and sometimes those leads will uh, constantly sort of flex, and eventually one of them could crack. That can happen. Uh, And then over time, also the battery wears out in the generator itself, and we do have to replace it every several years. Kind of like a standard pacemaker for the heart. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have the battery replaced. It could last, depending on how often it's activated, you know, Five years, ten years—it kind of depends on the individual. So, the bat, but that wouldn't require the brain surgery again. That could be the surgery where the pack is inserted under the clavicle. Correct. That that replacement is is a quick and relatively uh, easy surgery relative to the brain surgery portion. The thing that we worry about the most in this surgery, and and but but is a rare complication, is is having a stroke when we actually put the uh, electrode into the brain. Uh, that can happen where you have bleeding around the electrode. Uh, the probability of it being symptomatic is very, very low, uh, probably in the 1% range, but something like that can happen, uh, although be, albeit rare. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my friends here, Dr. Matthew Chang, neurosurgeon, Dr. Stuart Pang, neurologist, both from Kaiser Permanente and their patient, Neil, who had deep brain stimulation done for Parkinson's disease and still follows up with Dr. Pang to manage some of his medications. And we're talking today about what is DBS or deep brain stimulation? Why are we using it? Who is a candidate? And how can this really change someone's life if they have maximized their use of medication for whether it be essential tremor or Parkinson's disease? When we come back, we're going to talk more about the benefits that Neil has seen in his own life and also some more information about how this can really be part of the treatment algorithm for people who have Parkinson's with Dr. Pang. And we'll hear more about brain surgery from Dr. Chang because, you know, that's that's a whole big area where we have a lot of learning that we're still doing. So remember, you can always join us. 
If you or someone you love has had Parkinson's, if you're wondering, is GBS something that could be done for them, there might be some criteria that they they meet and some that they may not. But you can certainly join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. On the next humankind. I find it hard to believe because it sounds so impossible, but it was possible at that time, and the preponderance of letters and diary entries made it clear that this really did happen. In the darkness of World War I, opposing soldiers called a Christmas truce against orders. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Silk read me many stories, and it seemed a lot of snow was in almost all of them. Drifting, dazzling, fairy tale flakes. Christmas with Truman Capote. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Matthew Chang, neurosurgeon from Kaiser Permanente, Dr. Stuart Pang, neurologist from Kaiser as well, and his patient, Neil, who had deep brain stimulation done for Parkinson's disease. And we're hearing about what is this technique, how can it fit into treatment of Parkinson's, and has Neil ever changed his own stimulation himself? We're going to get back to back to Neil in just a minute. But remember, this is a conversation we are all having together. And if you or someone you love has been dealing with Parkinson's, or with essential tremor, which is another condition that, although not associated with Parkinson's, can still be somewhat disabling in someone's attempt to do their own daily activities, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the actual physical adjustments of a deep brain stimulator. And, you know, Neil, you brought in for me to look at today your actual... It's a Medtronic device. It looks kind of like the size of a bulky flip phone, if you can picture that. Um, but it's about that size. It's, you know, it's not sleek like our new thin cell phones are. But this is, and it's not very big. And this actually allows you to change your own settings. So, Neil, what did you used to do in your life prior to getting Parkinson's? I was an educator. I was a principal. You were a principal. Okay. And so that's that's a hard job to be at a school, to be in charge of stuff. And then once you got Parkinson's, what were your earliest symptoms? What were some of the things that you noticed first? Tremors. The tremor. I thought maybe I was having maybe too much coffee or maybe uh, nervous about something. Okay. So you noticed the tremors, and then it progressed over time to when you were diagnosed with Parkinson's. Right. And then you wound up being on medication and adjusting it and deciding that you just dove right in, deep brain stimulation was for you. So tell me, you have the device implanted now. I'm looking at this this external piece of equipment that allows you to turn your stimulator up or to turn it down. Have you ever used it? Yes. What are your signs that you want to stimulate more? Well, as you notice, my speech is not as uh, effective as I wanted it to be. 
we've been trying to play around with, not play around with, but trying to adjust the deep brain stimulator uh, so that it can uh, improve my speech. Okay, speech is one area. Yeah, so if, if I turned off the stimulator, my speech is better. If you turned it off, my speech would be your better. speech is better. Then my, my, my tremors would be back. Mm. So we're trying to find a, a balance. balance whereby my speech can be better and my, my tremors may. Okay, so really trying to find that fine-tuning right. to get to the perfect level for you now. Now, Dr. Pang, the perfect level for Neil today might be different than the perfect level a year from now. Yes, that's correct. And so you really do need to have that day-to-day flexibility. Mm. Yeah, because unfortunately Parkinson's is a progressive disease, the slow deterioration of the basal ganglia. You lose more and more nerve cells. So as the years progress, they do develop more symptoms, so that's why we have to keep adjusting medications, and and in this case also the brain stimulation. Do you ever see people who get off of medicine when they have the stimulator? We actually have two patients who no longer take their medications. Were they both people with Parkinson's? They both have Parkinson's disease. Um, one uh, had bad side effects from the medicine. Um, so we did the deep brain stimulation. He's even doing better than uh, when he was on medications. Because of those side effects. Right. Okay. And then we had another patient who, uh, after about a year, we just stopped, took him off his medicine because he was doing so well. Is that the norm that you see or not really? Well, I think what we like to see is that when we put the deep brain simulation in and we adjust the correct parameters, that we can lower the amount of medications so they have less side effects. And then eventually if they need more medicine, they could take it, but there's almost a limit to how much medicine you can use. You're sort of saving that for later should they need it. That's exactly what we do. We want to use as much or as little medicine as possible to make them function very well. And if they need the medicine later, it'll be more effective if they don't have to take such a high dose now. That's exactly true. How many folks do you follow that have had DBS surgery? Well, I currently follow up with 25 patients in my practice at Kaiser right now who have deep brain stimulation. And has it been successful for all of them? Uh, I would say that uh, 80% of them do very well with it. Uh, The other 20%, uh, after a while, it, it didn't work as well. Uh, so after five years, they, but that's uh, to me, that's a progression of the disease. Um, so for five years that it did work, they did notice some benefit. Right. They, have, they functioned at a better level than before the stimulation. So it kind of worked for everybody in some degree, right. but maybe not long-lasting. Yes, correct. As the disease has progressed. Yes. What are some of the signs that you would see in someone to suggest that their disease is progressing and that it's not a matter of their medication or their stimulator? How do you know the difference? Uh, well, we what we usually see is that as the disease progresses, people fall more, and so that's one of the hallmarks that the the deep brain stimulation, the medications are just not going to be as effective as we want it to be, because the stimulator does not prevent falls. It pre- helps them walk, but one of the problems with Parkinson's is balance issues, and so that well, that's the progression of the disease itself. So despite if you can help them to walk better, we know there's that sort of what they call a shuffling gait, where it's these tiny little steps trying to move forward instead of taking further steps to sort of help themselves walk. So if you can improve them with their gait but not their balance, you could still fall. The falls you can't prevent. And I would imagine, Dr. Chang, if somebody keeps falling and hitting their head, that's probably not good for those electrodes. Well, there can be a risk if you fall and hit your head. You develop a subdural hematoma, and, and uh, 
and patients can develop chronic subdural hematomas. Uh, and that could be stimulator or not. You could have that happen. Stimulator or not. You okay. know, we do see some atrophy of the brain uh, as people get older and in Parkinson's disease. And that atrophy predisposes people to, when they fall, having uh, a small amount of bleeding around their brain uh, called a subdural hematoma. And that can occur with multiple falls especially. Would that at all be exacerbated by the presence of those stimulator electrodes or not really? I think uh, it, it doesn't change the probability of developing a subdural hematoma when you fall. Uh, it does complicate uh, what we have to do about the subdural hematoma after if someone has a deep brain stimulator in. You know, typically we just put a burr hole and drain a subdural hematoma, but when you have a, a, a deep brain stimulator in, we have to take into account that there's wires going under your skin, and we don't want to cut the wires when we do the procedure to drain the the blood. And then after we do the procedure to drain the blood, we need to look at the wires and make sure they haven't moved in the brain. Sure, because the trauma could have moved them. The blood could have moved them. The blood pushes the brain around. And, sure, and, and those wires things. could be shifted as well. Sure. Okay. Do you see that happen often or not very much? It's pretty unusual. Okay. As opposed to just subdurals in general, which can actually be quite common, but to actually see this affect the deep brain stimulator, not that often. Yeah, I'm not, I have not ever had to move one for a subdural okay. hematoma at this point. How many folks have you been able to help with the procedure? I'd say we're doing a, between four and six a year. Uh, and so it's not the most common procedure, but for those individuals for whom it's appropriate, it's actually could be really, as Neil might say, life-altering. Oh, Definitely. Now, in the course of your career, where else do you think deep brain stimulation might be applied? There are some other conditions for whom we have a thought that it might be, um, but any ideas where it might go in the future? Well, uh, there's research going on in many different areas uh, regarding deep brain stimulation, whether it be seizures or depression, OCD. We see uh, it's uh, dystonia, which is a uh, uh, condition where... Uh, there's abnormal movements. Um, but right now, the, the the definitive thing is Parkinson's and the central tremor that we're using it for mostly. Are we not using it enough? I mean, I think of all the people I know who have Parkinson's, and I don't necessarily think that some of them would be candidates. They may have other brain issues. You mentioned dementia or depression earlier, Dr. Pang, but are we using this enough? I think what happens is that patients are aware of it, but a lot of them are um, reluctant to have it done. Uh, we just saw a patient today who I've tried to have it done for the past two years, and she finally consented uh, two months ago. So I think that's one of the barriers we have to get through. So I think education is important, and for patients to see that other patients have done very well. And it's, uh, it's a complicated procedure, but it can be very safe the, with the right uh, neurosurgeon. What is her reluctance? Her reluctance was um, she was just afraid to have it done, just having to have her head opened up to put a wire in the brain and all the possible complications mentioned earlier, infection, bleeding, a possible stroke. I mean, I can see why, why those would be serious considerations, and yet I was naively thinking that you had to put in a much bigger removal of part of the skull than just a small little burr hole, which... Granted, that's still a hole in the skull, but it's much smaller than people think. How big is it, Dr. Dr. Chang? If I were to just, you know, look at my fingernail, how big is a burr hole in comparison to, like, somebody's thumbnail? The burr hole that we create is 14 millimeters in size. 
So we're okay, that doesn't really about, help me. So so twenty five millimeters is an inch. So fourteen millimeters is about five eighths of an inch. Okay, so, so maybe the size of your thumbnail. It might be the size of my thumbnail. Okay, so that's a good measure. It's probably the size of a thumbnail. So it's a sizable hole, but it's not as huge as taking away part of the skull and putting in metal plates and all those sorts of things. Yeah, it's certainly not as technically or intricate of an operation for the neurosurgeon as many other operations that we do, like removing brain tumors or uh, clipping an aneurysm, say, or something like that. It's just drilling a, uh, you know, a, a small hole and then inserting electrodes. So from that standpoint, it's not uh, you know, as, as physically challenge, challenging for the surgeon in, so, in terms of having that steady hand or anything like that. So do you, color, do you I mean, just naively, do you close the hole? So the, the hole, uh, we put a special cover on the hole uh, that holds the electrode in place and doesn't allow the electrode to slip or move around. So it's, you don't put the bone back. You take that off and you put in a special piece that has that central core that will keep that stimulator from moving around Correct. and being adjusted. Should Now, I mean, just realistically. And then once you do that, after a while, someone can wash their hair. They can, like, do all their usual activities, shower, bathe. I mean, maybe not the first night or so, but eventually they can go back to doing everything like they did. We tell them they can shower after 24 hours, and uh, they can swim after about four weeks. So you can submerge in underwater after about four weeks. I didn't even think about swimming. Neil, do you swim? Yep. Swim. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, you know. So, And no risk where they swim. It doesn't have to be a pool. It could be the ocean. It just, you know, go in the water if you would normally and it's clean and no brown water advisory or all those wonderful things we hear about, right? As long as they wait adequate time for the wounds to heal completely. So usually four weeks after the second operation, uh, then we say, yeah, can swim uh, pretty much anywhere. Except for that brown water advisory. I don't know why I'm obsessed with that today. I don't know. I was just thinking about it, and I'll just have to get that out of my head. To me, that just means potential extra bacteria. And, uh, yeah, don't go there. All right. So, Neil, tell me, you're a swimmer now. Mm-hmm. How were you before? Yes. So swimming is one of those activities that you enjoy. Right. And how soon after you had the stimulator could you get back into, are you in an ocean or the pool or both? Both. Okay. Well, one thing I noticed is that, uh, right after the operation, uh, coming out of the recovery room, they told me, to get, they, told me what, they wanted me to get dressed. It was so much easier to get dressed at the time. Literally, right after you have the surgery, they say, get dressed, and you're like, I don't know, that's my big nemesis, that shirt and those buttons, forget it, and yet you were able to do it. Yeah, I didn't notice right away, it was an immediate effect. I went, went, oh, wow, what else can I do? Absolutely, you wonder all those things that, you know, I think sometimes in life we forget how much we can't do because we just accommodate for those challenges that we have and just forget that, it used to be so hard to do. What else did you notice in addition to getting dressed? Did you feel like there was any change in how quickly you were thinking, or did you feel that was exactly the same as before? Faster. Faster. Yeah. And there, uh, I, was, I was surprised at the, uh, the effects it had on me. So, so I, didn't think it would, I, I didn't think it would happen that fast, but it did. So if you were talking to... Dr. Pang's patient who, for two years, he's been trying to consider, have her consider this procedure. She's worried about all those side effects and complications. You kind of just dove right in, literally, like jumped off the rock and said, I'm going in the ocean. How would you respond to somebody who says, I'm afraid because of the complications? Well, 
it's going to have to be their decision. True. Yeah, so uh, I'll tell them about the, the benefits that I, that I experienced. Like, so from your firsthand experience, this is what you saw? Yeah. Okay. What happened, uh, what was like, uh, just like that Brian Gumbel uh, uh, program on National Geographic about the Parkinson's. All those things in there. What, was, what took place for the operation was there. And uh, I think they could understand that. Sure, and I know that there is a video that you can actually watch. Dr. Pang, I'm sure you've seen that before. Describe it a little bit. The video? I haven't seen it. Well, then I can't put you in the hot seat right. to describe that one. Okay, we'll talk about that in a few minutes because we have another guest coming on who I think has definitely has the experience and watched this and can help share what that was about. But part of it is the fact that they were actually doing a deep brain stimulation surgery live there on TV just so that people can get an idea of what it's like and see someone like Dr. Chang at work and also yourself and know that, yes, it's a big procedure, but sometimes when you see it, when you see the person before, when you see them after... You can actually really witness what has happened. It really helps you to understand all about it. Exactly. Now, I'm curious, Dr. Chang, any fears that people have, I'm sure, when they come in to meet you and they hear about it and they know about what you're going to do, what sort of concerns do they express to you? Uh, I think people are most afraid of that first portion where they're awake for the entire thing. And uh, that can it can be... That could be testing, you know, uh, to Awake, be... Awake, but is their skull numbed up a little bit? Yeah, so they're that... they're completely numbed up. Uh, okay. They'll feel pressure and maybe some pulling in things. Like the dentist, my, like the my dentist. friends, sure. Okay. Exactly, and they'll hear... The, the, it's it's loud, and they'll hear us talking, and they'll hear the brain. Uh, uh, when we drill, it's very loud. When we're doing the electrode recordings, they'll hear a lot of popping and cracking-type noises. Can they just listen to classical music or something? Can they just pop in some headphones until you say, okay, take them out, we're ready? We do need them also to comply with uh, some of the things that we do when we test them through the case. So uh, uh, they no headphones. Sort of, yeah, no. You just got to listen and, to see how it really goes. And they're listening. Right. I I try and talk to them as much as possible and uh, and keep it as light as we can during the case to uh, to sort of distract them from what's going on. Sure, because that's probably not something that uh, they would readily think about wanting to be there. Neil, what was your experience? They turned the music off. I didn't like the one the music on. The <laughs> so you're in the OR and you're like, cut that music, buddy. I don't like it. You play some Hawaiian, good Hawaiian music. And I think one of the doctors said they can't, con- they can't, they can't concentrate with the, with the music. The music had to go. But I, I heard other people, um, I could hear them talking about the uh, the, coordin- the coordinates of the, uh, with my brain. It was a G2 or So they're talking about all these things and you're hearing it. And you might not understand what it is, which might be good. (laughs) All right. Wonderful. Well, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Matthew Chang, neurosurgeon, Dr. Stuart Pang, neurologist, and Neil, a deep brain stimulation patient. And he is from Kaiser, actually the doctor from Kaiser Permanente. Neil had his procedure done there, I think, correct? Okay. And also still sees Dr. Pang. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit with Kevin Lockett. He is currently in charge of the Parkinson's Association. And we're going to talk a little bit about what are some of the different challenges that people have expressed as far as their Parkinson's condition in general. We're going to put him in the hot seat to describe that video because he sent it to me. So I'm hoping he's watched it because I did. 
And we'll be right back in just a few minutes, 941-3689. If you have a question about whether or not this is something that you would qualify for or someone you love, if you have Parkinson's, and again, neighbor islands, our friends, toll-free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. The African Americans on Maui Association has a mission this time of year to celebrate and inform the community about the Kwanzaa holiday, an African-American and Pan-African holiday celebrated by millions throughout the world. We'll talk with the organization's president, Wynn George, tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. All those packages getting delivered for the holidays? Yeah, they don't ship themselves, you know. So this system that you're looking at is rated at 6,000 packages every two minutes, and our normal night is 550,000 packages through this sort. I'm Kai Rizdal. Our series, My Economy, goes to Memphis, Tennessee, next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with my guests, Dr. Matthew Chang, neurosurgeon, Dr. Stuart Pang, neurologist, both at Kaiser Permanente. Thank you to Neil earlier, who was sharing his experience as someone who's had deep brain stimulation and has Parkinson's and is doing extremely well living with that condition, and very successfully, I might add. And we have another guest today. We have Kevin Lockett. He is the head of the Hawaii Parkinson's Association and also knows quite a bit about deep brain stimulation. And if you or have a loved one or you yourself have Parkinson's and you want to know hey, is this something that you might qualify for? These guys are the ones who can probably tell you if you have any of the criteria that would suggest that it's something you need to consider. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Kevin, welcome. We had you sitting in the corner. You're live on air now. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Now, we just mentioned, Neil actually mentioned, that uh, video that you sent to me. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so it was kind of interesting. Uh, they had a National Geographic television, had a live DBS procedure. Um, it was narrated, I guess, or <laughs> interviewed with uh, Brian Gumble. And uh, the procedure that they did was exactly what is done in centers all over the nation, including here in Hawaii. And so it actually showed the procedure that Dr. Chang was talking about where you, you the person is awake and you're doing the, the burr holes and then you're implanting the electrodes. And it's sort of showing people what that's like and in some ways I think reassuring them what the actual entire process would feel like and would be like. Yeah, no, it it was it was spot on, uh, you know, what happens. And it kind of, you know, I think it was good in the sense that it kind of takes a mystery out of it. You know, people think, ooh, brain surgery. Um, but if you see, you know, the the steps and, and how methodical it is. And one thing that uh, they didn't mention uh, in the interview earlier today is that the target is so small. It's smaller than a peanut. And the, the surgeons are able to, uh, you know, put a electrode in the dorsal lateral aspect of a peanut. So the precision, is, is it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So although the mystery might be taken out of what you do, Dr. Chang, there's still a lot of mystery. you got to be pretty precise. It definitely uh, it's a it's a process where we follow several steps to achieve a goal where we're placing something into a space that's you know five six millimeters in size. So uh, it's it's precise. And you know you're there because of 
and that's the messages and the signals that you get from the brain, which is why somebody has to be awake. Correct. As we're as we're advancing the the microelectrode, we're recording the output from the brain, so you can hear the actual neurons firing, and that's why we turn off the music at that point during the case. Because you got to hear stuff. We need to hear the neurons uh, firing and and listen to the pattern at at which they fire to determine where when we hit the border of that subthalamic nucleus of the brain. Because it sounds different. It does. It it, it sounds dramatically different. And when you hit it, it can be extremely dramatic and and. Uh, we want to hit that, and then we want to have that recording go for at least four millimeters, and then we can place the electrode in there. You know I'm going to make you do it. you got to make the sound of a nerve firing. Oh, I think Kevin could do that better Kevin, than one of you guys. Because <laughs> now I'm like, what is this noise, right? So I realize we're not hearing this in our head. This is you using sensitive electronic equipment to be able to detect this sound, and it is a an amplification of it. But one of you guys, you're in the hot seat. Okay, I'll do it as a description. All right, Kevin, you're uh, it. So it's basically going from kind of silent to uh, heavy rain on a tin roof. Like just. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But it goes from quiet to that, and it is it's dramatic. And, and that's and, the uh, sound of nerves firing. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's got to be a special moment. Oh, it's when we hit it in the OR, everyone sort of smiles and we have a little celebration. Yeah. But you guys are used to it. I'm just thinking of, wow, the first time you hear. The nerves fire. I don't think people, I think the lay public, including myself, really have a complete grasp of of what exactly the brain does. The brain is a jumble of nerves. And those nerves are in special collections and have special functions and special chemicals that they make themselves and they release to other cells, other nerve cells, and that gives messages. Correct. All of your thoughts are basically heard like rain on a tin roof. Yep. That's pretty amazing. So you get to be there, you get to hear it, you know you're in the right place, and then you know how to advance this deep brain stimulator. Have What would it sound like if you, you said it's silence otherwise? Do you hear other sounds of other areas of the brain? And if so, is it just like softer rain or what else would you hear? So we first start recording in an area of the brain called the thalamus, and that, that will have... Uh, like a slower rain, I guess I would say. We hear a drip here and a drip there, you know, more like a dripping faucet with a couple of pops and, and, mm-hmm. and things. And then we advance through a more silent area. And then as and then it just really explodes into uh, a downpour when we hit the uh, correct spot. Now, is that, you know, Dr. Pang, I've got to ask, is that because certain areas of the brain are more electrically active than others? That's exactly what it is. There's certain areas of the brain that are firing. And All the time. Firing. Yeah. And other areas that might be quiet. Quieter, yes. And that's why you really have to turn off all the noise so that you guys can hear exactly what you're listening for and know you're in the right place. And now, do you guys have to coordinate in the operating room together? So there, there is a coordination between neurology and neurosurgery in the operating room for doing that electrode recording, correct? So we know what you're doing. You're advancing them. You're listening. You're getting excited when you get to the right place. You're the guy who puts in the very gentle numbed up anesthetized holes. What are you doing, Dr. Pang? I'm uh, not part of the operating room team. We have a, other neuro, a neurophysiologist who is there. What is the neurophysiologist doing? They're, they're listening and making doing sure the that, they're, uh, that they're in the right place. And once they're in the right place, they let Dr. Chang know. And so that's that's that coordination. Right, exactly. So you can hear it, but you also have somebody else who's an expert. They can hear it. You agree together. Here's where we're at. This is what happens. That's correct. All right, Kevin, have you watched these surgeries? 
Uh, I have. I have. I'm actually in the procedures. Uh, Participating yeah. as well. Yeah. So okay. it's basically it's a team approach. I mean, the you know the, the neurosurgeons leading the. Uh, you know, directing us, but uh, just listening to the sound together collectively, you know, deciding, you know, are we in the right spot? Do we need to, you know, go a little bit further, deeper, whatever, to uh, to hit that, what we call the sweet spot. But, yeah. And as the head of the Hawaii Parkinson's Association, do you know of a lot of folks who have had the procedure? Uh, yes. You know, it's there's two centers that do the procedure. One is at Kaiser and one is at Queens. Um, and both centers have been doing it since uh, 2002. So it, it's not a new procedure per se. Uh, I think, uh, um, you know, people think it's new because, you know, uh, it was just in the news. But it's been it's been over a decade, uh, been FDA approved for, for, for many, many years. So for those folks, are any of them who've had it part of the Parkinson's Association? Yeah, definitely. We have a, a lot of people that have had DBS. There's some people that actually were the first ones in Hawaii, had it, or you know, the nation had it done in 2002, had the, the device for 10 years. So they actually can share their experiences with some of the other folks. Because one of the things Neil did is he shared with us his firsthand knowledge of what this was like. And I think a lot of times just hearing from someone who's been there and done that can be reassuring. And that type of reassurance, although it's it's nice to hear about it, from someone like Dr. Chang or Dr. Pang, hearing about it from a person who's been there and done that is so powerful and really helps people to know, I could do it too because, look, they made it out okay. They're doing so well now. I mean, I think that firsthand sharing of a story is just critical to helping everybody else as well. Oh, oh for sure. And, and out of that, so uh, what happens to uh, uh, is there is a kind of an ambassador club. Neil is one of our head ambassadors that people are interested in, uh, you know, just investigating about the procedure, um, they'll get a phone call, you know, uh, or, or they can call, you know, one of our ambassadors and, and they talk about it. The other thing we did through as an organization, Hawaii Parkinson's Association, we have support groups uh, all over the uh, island and islands. Um, and we just added a DBS support group because there's more interest and more people uh, with DBS wanting to get together and share their experiences and have people who want to learn about it. Um, so, so we just start, we actually had our very first one last month. And uh, we'll be uh, we'll be starting up again after the holidays in January. So where could people find out about some of the support groups, not just for the deep brain stimulation, but for Parkinson's in general? Yeah, so our website is the best way to get information. Um, it is uh, Parkinson's with an S, Parkinson'sHawaii.org. And there is a listing of all the support groups and uh, resources that we have there. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of actually uh, uh, revamping our website, so you have to be patient with us for a couple of weeks. But by... Uh, by January 1, we'll have the new website up and, and going. There's a calendar of events of all kinds of educational opportunities that we have pretty much year-round. So anybody who really wants to learn more about Parkinson's or has a loved one who has it or might have been diagnosed themselves, they can go to that website and can really find out some helpful information for themselves and where they can meet up with other people. For sure. It's excellent for both local and uh, national information. There's information on links that are credible um, that will give you good information. Uh, it'll let you know what's going on with local clinical trials if you want to be a part of that. Um, so there's a, I think there's a lot more going on in the Parkinson's community that people are aware of, and so uh, we're really trying to, to get the word out through that website. Well, and I think the other, the other idea of that is that for those folks who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's, sometimes you feel like you're, you're kind of all alone in a way, and you don't know enough about it but might be scared to go to 
go to the Internet and look stuff up. You have to vet some of these websites to make sure it's not offering you a cure in a bottle of something that may or may not actually be helpful at all. So the Parkinson's Association has already done that. The links that they connect you to are pretty spot on. They've been you've checked them out or you've had other folks check them out. You're not going to be heading to a website that's going to do something strange. Oh, no, for sure. It's, it's definitely vetted out. We actually have a, a clinical advisory council that, that has – we have five neurologists on it. So if we have any questions on whether it's appropriate or not, we run it through, uh, through that gang. Um, yeah, and one of the worst things that you can do if you're newly diagnosed is Google Parkinson's and get a million websites. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. It'd be, be a little overwhelming. Overwhelming, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then some of them sort of, you know, even with some of my favorite medical websites, sometimes people just need to get a little bit of information, and they may not be ready to hear all of the information of the longer-term concerns that could happen. They just they kind of want the early stages, and it scares them, I would imagine, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So information is power, but too much. And, and just, you know, when you get diagnosed with a disease that's progressive and there's no cure, it, you know, there's, there's there's a process that you have to go through. And we just try to uh, connect people, try to give resources and, and educate them that, you know, okay, you got dealt this card, but you can still live well with that and, and try to direct them in those directions. And the support groups are one of the, the best ways to really uh, go through that process together. Yeah, I'm amazed sometimes that I have some folks who go to support groups for a variety of things, whether it be cancer or even online support groups where you have a rare condition and there might not be a lot of people in your local community who have it or geographically it's hard to get there. And you can even be on an online support group where you can share experiences with one another and have that facilitator to make sure that things are said appropriately and or at least explained in a way that makes sense. So it's another great resource. Dr. Pang, I'm curious, do you recommend support groups a lot for some of the folks you see? Yes, I recommend the Hawaii Parkinson's Association for patients to learn more about the disease and also to uh, communicate with other patients who have gone through uh, the years of having the Parkinson's. Absolutely, because, you know, I've had a couple of folks who have had some rare conditions over the years, and I've actually connected one of my folks, one of my patients with another one to say, hey, could you call so-and-so? Because I really think they have what you have. It's it's a rare thing. They need some of your expertise. But that's just me doing it one-on-one and not necessarily connecting them up to a community. So I think the Hawaii Parkinson's Association, really kudos to you guys for, for getting out there, for vetting some of the websites, but also for just being a connecting source for folks who want more information. Because there's a lot out there, some of it good, some of it not so much. Helpful to know that there's a good quality source that they can get some of the data from. Oh, great. Thanks. Now, I'm curious, Dr. Chang, when we're talking about the DBS surgery, how long, you know, we didn't, I want to ask you just some of the basics. How long does it take? So that first part, uh, we come in, the first thing we do is take the patient to the operating room and, and give them some sedation, numb them up, and apply that head frame. And that portion takes about 15 minutes. Then they go down from the operating room to the CT scanner and get a scan and uh, done with the head frame in place so we can do all of our measurements. And that part takes probably about 30 to 45 minutes. Then they come back up to the room, uh, to the operating room, and we and uh, we do all the calculations and start the procedure. And that portion can take anywhere from a couple hours to four hours. So really within the course of an eight-hour day, but not even, much less than that, you could, if somebody had Parkinson's and decided to do this, their life could be transformed. Yeah, typically we'll start about 7.30, and sometimes we finish as early as, you know, 10.30 or 11 in the morning. Uh, and and 
people do have some immediate effects from it. Uh, yeah, Neil, I, said Neil said he was told get dressed, and then he actually did. He surprised himself. And that was before we even hooked up the battery. So uh, just the, uh, the what we call the micro-lesioning effect of placing the electrode into the subthalamic nucleus altered his symptoms and improved his symptoms. Uh, and then so he had effects even without ever hooking up the battery or, or, or turning it on. So And uh, then once you do... Then it, there's even more effects. Now, how often do patients need to see you? Uh, for my portion of things, they'll usually do a preoperative consultation with me, and uh, then we'll schedule the surgery. Then after the surgery, I'll usually see them at uh, two weeks postoperatively and six six weeks postoperatively and three months postoperatively to look at their incisions, make sure everything he- is healing properly. And then after that, they're back to their neurologist like Dr. Pang. After that, they're with Dr. Pang mostly, Yeah. All right, and Dr. Pang, how long or how how old is the oldest stimulator that you're helping to monitor? Is it one of the 2002 folks? or? Oh, uh, I have a, someone who's had it for uh, 12 years. 12 uh, years, so maybe. he's 20. had the battery change uh, th- three times already. And so he's continuing to benefit from well, this? He's doing okay. He still has some issues with uh, stability and balance, but we he still insists that we replace the battery every time it runs out. So he does feel he has an effect. It's allowed us to keep his uh, amount of medications low because the medications have side effect making him too sleepy. So, it so it's help. really this balance. So even after all these years, even after 13 years, you said, he's still seen a benefit from the device, able to reduce his use of medication, mm-hmm. therefore reduce side effects. And although his disease may have progressed, you mentioned earlier, sometimes the loss of balance is not necessarily anything more than the progression of the condition. He still has managed well for that long. Right. Well, he wants to continue to replace the battery every time it runs out. So, yes. Well, and it makes a lot of sense if he's noticing a benefit, you know, definitely continue to have that available because... It's helping him. Yeah, it does because we, when the battery stopped working, we clearly see that there's a change. Really? So they you even notice say, it? Yeah, he knows. Well, it does help him. Wow. All right. And if people want to get more information about Parkinson's, Kevin, remind us where they can get that and what sort of, what sort of resources are available. Again, the uh, website is parkinsonshawaii.org. And, uh, again, be patient with us because we're in the, right in the middle of reconstructing it <laughs> and revamping it. But um, it will have a, a uh, calendar of, of events throughout the year. We usually we'll have something going on every month, uh, educational lecture. Um, there'll be a listing of uh, local clinical trials that are available here if you have Parkinson's. There's a, a, actually a couple of national studies that Hawaii's benefit to be part of, uh, as well as support groups and uh, all kinds of links and, and good information. Fantastic. All right. Well, I want to thank all of you for being on today. Thanks again, Dr. Matthew Chang, Dr. Stuart Pang, neurosurgeon and neurologist, respectively, from Kaiser Permanente. Thanks to Neil, the brave patient who has gone through deep brain stimulation and was able to be here today and share his experiences. And thanks to Kevin Lockett. You sort of arranged this group today. You got everybody together helping us out in the studio, making sure that we're able to talk about this, but also helping out with the Hawaii Parkinson's Association. So thanks to all four of you. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links. Our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. Dr. Kozak, we'll see you again next week.